0: So one of the things that we believe about spiritual formation, form form is a word that has to do with shape, right? And formation means someone is causing my shape to change. So we, we believe that people aren't shaped right and we need to be reshaped. We need Jesus to change our shape to become more like his. One of the ways that happens is through the scriptures, through knowing the books of the Bible and how Jesus shapes us, to himself through all of the words of Scripture. And so we've been doing this series over a couple of years at Intel called Learning to Love God's Word. We've been taking, you know, one, one sermon on each book of the Bible just so that we can hear something from every part of Scripture. And we've been going through the letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, starting with the book of Romans and working our way through. Last week, uh, we did the book of Titus. That's 12 out of 13, the 13th letter is a, a book called Philemon, and um, <clears throat> 25 verses. It's a, book that, it's a book written by the Apostle Paul, an ambassador for the gospel of Jesus. It's written to a man named Philemon, to a lot of other people as well, but Philemon is addressed by name. That's where the book gets its title, Philemon was a first-century Roman Christian. Philemon was a slaveholder. And the Apostle Paul was writing him about a relationship with a man named Onesimus, a first-century Roman Christian who was a slave in Philemon's household. How does this good news of the gospel transform the relationship between a slaveholder and a slave how does this good news of the gospel transform the way Christians think about slavery itself how does the gospel transform the way we think about our relationships today the way we think about the long term effects of slavery in our nation and culture the ongoing injustices because of racial divisions and racial harm that has been done in our nation. We believe the gospel has good news to speak to all of those things. And so, even though this is 25 little verses in the book of Philemon, it raises a whole lot of important questions. We want to address those honestly. So, in the summer of 2020, I started talking to a group of friends and we decided to, to, to make a team effort to address those kinds of questions through a series we're calling the Philemon Project. And so over 10 weeks, we're going to branch out from these 25 verses to consider a whole lot of other scripture texts and issues of, of uh, interpretation of the Bible and application of the Bible, what it would have meant to apply these things in the first century and what it would mean to do that in the 21st century. And so, I'd like to take some time now to introduce you to our team. A couple of team members don't live here locally, and so we're going to have them introduce themselves using videos. So, can we start with Thurman Williams?
1: Well, good morning, in town. It's great to meet you guys. I know a few of you. I'm a big fan of Jim Wirt and Angela Nance, and of course, your pastor, Jimmy Agan who actually was one of my professors at Covenant Seminary. I learned a ton from him um, about preaching and about Greek. Um, but one of the things I say about him that I love, especially over these last few months as we've been working on this project, is he is just a great guy, a great brother and great friend. And uh, that's a part of this project with Luke and Stephen and Jimmy and I. Is, and we hope that comes out. And even if it doesn't, we're going to have fun right we're enjoying each other as friends um and brothers in the lord and we're learning so much from each other so we're excited to be with you all and talk about this book of philemon um honestly i've never preached on this before thought about it and i'm learning so much uh from from the book itself but from these other guys and i hope that you all will too i am grateful to you guys for your hospitality and inviting us in and including us we are just excited to be with you I'm a pastor, I forgot to say this earlier, I'm a pastor in St. Louis um, at New City West End we're actually a church plant that just started maybe a year and a half ago um, we were nine months in when COVID really hit um, hmm. so, so we've kind of just like you guys, we're learning how to do church in a different way now so that's great uh, but anyway, I am excited to be with you guys and looking forward to all that's gonna come from this. So thank you so much for inviting us again and including us and, and we're excited to see what happens.
2: Good morning in town, this is Luke Bobo. I'm excited to join with uh, Jimmy, Stephen and Thurman as we explore together the book of Philemon. You have my bio um, on your website Um, But let me say a little bit about your pastor. Um, I first met Jimmy. He was my Greek New Testament professor at Covenant Seminary. And you should ask me sometime why uh, I love your pastor. I encourage you to pray for us. Uh, This is a new uh, journey. And um, we covet your prayers. And before signing off, let me give a shout out to Jason Kang. he endured a class for me last fall, apologetics and outreach. Uh, much love to you, and perhaps I uh, get to see you in person. All the best. Bye now.
0: As you can tell, Luke has a great taste in neckwear. Um, uh, so Thurman's in St. Louis, Luke is in Kansas City, Kansas, though I think he works in Kansas City, Missouri, but that's another conversation. Stephen Gilchrist is a team member who lives here in Atlanta. Stephen, you want to come introduce yourself and pray for us?
3: Good morning, family. Man, that, that sounds really good, even with masks on. Uh, I am Stephen Gilchrist. I don't really like to talk about myself much. I live here in Atlanta. I'm, I'm on staff at Atlanta Westside. And now we're going to pray. All right, we talk more in person. I don't like to do this. All right, let us pray. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, uh, for living a, a perfect life and, and dying a righteous, satisfying death and, and to rise in victory. We thank you for your spirit to take ordinary people like us and give us this extraordinary power. So now we are holy and we are righteous and we are loved and we are accepted and we are adopted and we are redeemed. Lord, I ask that you will prepare our hearts and our minds as we prepare to hear the sermon. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see you and your truth, to see you high and lifted up, to see you as king of our life. And all these things we pray, and every saint said, Amen. Amen.
1: A reading from Philemon, verses 1 through 6, and verse 25. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you, and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Where do you turn, turn when you really need to get something done? You know, you might have that uh, business card of the local handyman who is the go-to uh, problem solver. Or maybe it's your favorite IT person. Or, or maybe, maybe it just has to do with how to make Netflix work, and so it's someone who's 12 or 13 who knows what all the buttons do and you don't but when you really need to get something done, where do you turn? Um, I used to teach preaching classes at Covenant Seminary. And um, in fact, Thurman said that he remembers meeting me when I was his teacher. My memory of Thurman is, is us teaching together. Um, and uh, I think he would echo this, that sometimes when you're teaching preaching classes, especially at the doctor of ministry level, you're teaching people who've been in ministry for a while. So sometimes teaching on the master's level, you're teaching students who haven't been in ministry yet. They ask a different kind of question. One of the common questions I would get in teaching those who had already been pastoring for a while was something along these lines. Hey, hey. Prof, um, <clears throat> preaching about Jesus is great, but sometimes when you really need to get something done, what do you preach? You preach Jesus plus donate to the church, because preaching about Jesus is great. I mean, I get what you're saying, Doc, but um, but sometimes the church budget is a bit behind, and you need to raise money fast. So isn't it okay every once in a while to preach Jesus plus donate? Or it might be Jesus plus volunteer. Hey doc, thanks for teaching us. Preaching about Jesus is great. I taught a lot of classes called Christ-centered preaching or some variation on that. Yeah, Christ-centered preaching, great. But you know, when there's just not enough nursery volunteers to go around, Isn't it okay to take a few weeks just to preach Jesus Plus volunteer? When you really need to get something done, where do you go? You go to Plus. Isn't that okay? Now Thurman and I would say, no, that's not okay. (laughs) That's not okay. But maybe, maybe you're thinking this series, the Philemon Project, is a Jesus Plus justice series. Oh, oh, I get it. 2020 was a bad year in a lot of ways. And maybe Jesus, uh, Jimmy, (laughs) sorry, don't confuse those two, please. Maybe Jimmy just wants to really get something done for a few weeks. And so we're about to hear 10 weeks of Jesus plus justice. Well, first of all, this is not Jimmy. This is a team. This is four of us. I am one voice among four. I am outnumbered. We won't do it the way I want. We will do it the way we have worked together as a team to decide. And none of us on the team believe that Jesus plus anything is healthy. Let's see why. I want to take a few moments to explore the Jesus plus justice theme a bit. Now, let me define the word justice. I'm going to borrow this definition from Pastor Tim Keller In New York City, justice is giving all human beings their due as creations of God. So there's a biblical, a Christian view of of justice, just a brief summary. We'll expand on that, I'm sure, over the next several weeks. But let's just start there, giving all human beings their due as creations of God. Jesus plus justice is not where we're going over the next 10 weeks. Here's one reason why. We could treat that plus as the proof that we are better than other people. Jesus plus justice makes me better than those Christians who don't ever talk about justice. If I'm a Jesus plus justice person, then then adding the justice is the way that I prove that I am better than other people who don't talk about justice enough. Now, you can flip that the other way, right? And you can say, well, I don't like the justice theme. It actually makes me a little co- uncomfortable. And um, the way I show I'm better than other people is by not talking about justice as much as they do. I'm a, I'm a better Christian than those people who are jumping on the justice bandwagon. But, but either way we twist that, the plus Becomes the proof that we're better than other people. But listen, listen to what this book is telling us. Verse three Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing God and knowing Jesus is about grace. The very last verse of the book says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with Y'all's spirit. The Greek word is plural, your spirit. All of you, may the grace of the Lord Jesus shape this Christian community. And if we're using plus to prove that we're better than other people, then we're canceling out grace. Knowing Jesus isn't about proving that you're better than someone else. Knowing Jesus is about being rescued by a divine gift. That's what grace is. So we're not about to do 10 weeks of Jesus plus, here's a way to prove that we're better than other people. I'm going to prove that I'm better by, yeah, adding justice to my Jesus. Or I'm going to prove that I'm better by crossing my arms and scowling so that everybody knows I disapprove of all this talk about justice. We're not trying to prove that we're better than other people. Here's another way we can twist the plus. Maybe the plus is the way of moving from religion to the real world. You know, because like Jesus, well, Jesus, that's a religious claim. And, and we really can't know if any religious claims are true, can we? I mean, at the end of the day, how can we really know that Jesus is the way? How, how can we really know about Jesus? Because human people wrote these scriptures and we know their opinions, but we don't really know Jesus. So because we can't really know any of those things, let's add something on so that we can be sure we're doing some real good in the world. So maybe this Jesus plus justice thing is a way of saying religion is so unsure and, and so unstable that we want to move into something that will actually do good for the world. So let's get away from the religious claims as uncertain as they are, and let's do some real good. Jesus, eh, kind of iffy. That's a religious thing. Not real sure about it. Justice, now we're on solid ground. Well, here's a problem. If you think justice is going to solve problems in the world, you've already assumed that justice is better than injustice. And that's pretty much like a religious claim, right? If, if, if you're not sure how you would know that believing in Jesus is better than not believing in Jesus, but you think you can be sure that justice is better than injustice, how are you sure? So by adding that plus, you haven't really avoided the issue, We need a justice that's rooted in something true and real and bigger than our assumptions. We need an approach to justice that is rooted in Jesus. It's not something you tack on to Jesus. It's not something you add so that you can prove you're better. It's not something you add to Jesus because, well, he's a little unsure and this we can be more certain about I love this quote by Russell Moore. It's on the front of our worship guide this week. Jesus is not a mascot for something we would still be doing even if we thought he was dead. Jesus plus justice is not what we are doing over the next 10 weeks. It's not what any of our team members embrace. We're going to argue for something different. Jesus, therefore, justice. Look at verse one of the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. The other bookend, other end of this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Jesus is called Christ. Christ means anointed one. The the king who was anointed to bring God's kingdom into this world. Another quote on our worship guide this week comes from a book called Reading Mile Black. I would recommend that to you. It's by a New Testament professor, believer in Jesus named Esau Esau Macaulay. And he says uh, this, once we agree that Jesus is the son of God and Israel's true king, the next question becomes what kind of king will he be? What will his rule be like? And then he says kingship in the Bible is linked to justice. So the moment we call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king, we are already talking about justice. Why are we going to talk about justice as believers in Jesus? Because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, therefore we're already dealing with justice. Here's a reminder from the scriptures. Psalm 72 is a great Old Testament summary of what you expect God's anointed king to do and to be. First four verses, a prayer. Give the king your justice, O God. And may your and give your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness. May he judge your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Whatever other kings are like, whatever other leaders and rulers might be like, this is what the king who's anointed by God should be like. And you can't separate the king from justice according to the scriptures. Look at this other word in verse 3 of Philemon. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, peace, It reflects the Hebrew word shalom. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of flourishing so that everybody who's under the reign of the king is flourishing. When the king brings about justice, it leads to the flourishing of all who embrace his reign. And there are some who live under the kingdom who won't embrace his reign, but will still be benefited by it. When we're talking about Jesus, the king who brings peace, we're talking about justice. There's also another key word here that links Jesus with justice. Not in a plus way. Not justice to prove that we're better than other people. Not justice because we're kind of iffy about Jesus, so we want something real solid to hang on to. But because we hold on to Jesus And we can know him as he's offered to us in the gospel message through the scriptures. Then we're going to be dealing with Jesus because he's the king. And that's what he deals with. There's another word that points in that direction it's the word Lord. Verse 5. Paul is thanking God because he knows Philemon is a man who has faith in the Lord Jesus. And the last verse of the book prays that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with the church. Now to you and to me, the word Lord sounds like religious language. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred these days, at least outside of Britain, where there's still a house of lords and lords and ladies. But outside of that context, if you say lord, it's, it's religious. That's what people would assume in modern English. But in the first century, that's political language. Caesar is the one who claims to be Lord. And if I'm a Roman citizen, then I submit to him. My first allegiance is to him. He is my Lord. That's a political term in the first century. It's also a a word that has to do with society and, and everyday relationships in first century Rome. Slavery was a normal feature of Roman society. It shouldn't have been Why? We'll argue that case over the next 10 weeks, but it was because we live in a broken world. And when you use the word Lord in day-to-day life, well, you would say master in modern English, two ways of translating the same Greek word. It was a claim that that I I could be someone else's master I could own them. I could have their sole allegiance. I could command them, and they were obligated to do whatever I would say. Caesar has my allegiance like that, and if I'm a master, a slave owner, I have someone else's allegiance in that way. In the first century, this was not religious language only. This was language that had to do with your everyday life and society, and it had to do with your politics, and now all of a sudden, you're saying, wait a minute, it's not Caesar who's Lord, but Jesus. My first allegiance is no longer to my politics. It is to the Savior who came to live and die to redeem me and this world and all who put trust in him. That changes everything. And wait a minute, I'm saying that I could own someone and claim their full allegiance as their master, their Lord, but if Jesus is the only legitimate Lord in this universe, that's going to have to change the way I think about these day-to-day interactions around this thing called slavery in my society. So Jesus claiming, believing, trusting that he is Christ, Messiah, anointed king, trusting that he is the resurrected Lord and ruler of all things, that means that we're going to have to think a lot about justice. We're going to have to think about the the peace and justice that Jesus came to bring. How does that reshape politics and the way I think about politics? How does that reshape the way I think about society? Even things that the rest of my society might say are quite normal under the rule of King Jesus, I would say that doesn't seem like normal under Jesus. True justice is not going to come when everybody says Caesar is Lord. True justice is not going to come when everybody says You are my master, and I will do whatever you please. True justice is going to come when people submit everything about themselves to Jesus. That's what the Christian gospel says. He is the Redeemer. He's the Savior. He's the Christ, the King, the Lord, nobody else. Jesus, therefore, Everything submitted to him, including how we think about giving all human beings their due as creations of God. But what is it about Jesus that would make us want to do that? Why would I want to submit everything to Jesus? Even if that's going to be hard for me. Because it's going to require me, in some ways, to go against the grain of politics in my culture. Everybody else around me is going to be saying, Caesar is Lord, and, and I'm saying, wait a second, Jesus is Lord. That's going to be uncomfortable and awkward. That might, that might bring up some conflict. What would make me want to put myself in that posture? What if it means going against society? Well, what what if I'm I'm hearing someone say, well, I am that slave's Lord and master, and I start to think, wait wait a second, Jesus is the Lord. Not right for one human being to claim that kind of authority over another human being. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the only one who deserves that kind of authority over anyone. I'm going to have to stick my neck out and go against everything my society says and stands for and considers normal. That's going to be really awkward and uncomfortable. What would make me want to do that? So we've got to dig into a third pattern. Jesus, therefore justice, tells us what to do. Let's learn what Jesus has to say about justice, giving people their due. Let's learn what Jesus wants us to do to bring his justice into our relationships as his people and into relationships with our neighbors. Jesus, therefore, justice tells us what to do. Jesus, grace, justice tells us what makes us want to do it. You see, under King Jesus, there is a kind of grace that is so beautiful and lovely. It brings it brings healing into a lot of broken places, that it makes us love him even more and it makes us want to follow him as he leads us into places that might be awkward and uncomfortable. Here's one form of that grace. Under King Jesus, there is grace for people who are marginalized by injustice. Throughout history, people who have been known as slaves, people who were considered property, people who were unjustly enslaved and and, and forced to do labor without any free choice in the matter, without any compensation, people who, if they were cared for at all, it was just so that the owner could get a better return on their investment because a healthy slave can do more work than an unhealthy one, so sometimes you read documents about slave owners that that seem to be kind to their slaves. But is it really kindness if if I'm only keeping you healthy so that I can get more out of you? Throughout history, slaves have been mistreated in this way, and they've been considered subhuman. Aristotle famously said that slaves are living tools. That's an attitude that shaped the, the first century Roman Empire. Slaves were considered those who either weren't human at all or if they were, it was only barely human. They didn't really belong to any group. They weren't allowed to dress in a way that showed that they identified with any ethnic group. In the Roman Empire, a slave was uh, required to wear a, a special hat when they went out in public so that you would know they don't belong here. Living tools at the margins of the human race, under the absolute control of someone who claimed to own them. if you want to see that? It has to do even with naming, right? You don't get to keep your name. I own you now. I'm going to change your name. So Philemon had a, had a slave that he named Onesimus. It's a word that means useful, a reminder of the absolute control that the master claimed. But now something has changed, and, and Onesimus, this person who would have been viewed under society as as maybe not even fully human only at the margins of humanity a living tool someone who belongs to the household like like a hairbrush would belong or like a rake would belong and now and now he is part of the church that meets at your house he's part of your Community. He doesn't belong like a piece of property. In fact, as we go through this letter, we'll hear the Apostle Paul said, He doesn't belong as a slave anymore. He belongs as a beloved brother. He's part of the family. He belongs in a totally different way now because Jesus is the King, because Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is the Lord. This person who had been pushed out to the margins is now a brother so so people who have been pushed out people who have been treated like they're barely human people who have been treated as the the only reason you matter is because someone else can use you or abuse you there is grace for you today in Jesus there is grace for people who have been pushed to the margins unjustly. There is hope for real change in this broken world. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter about the year 62 AD. I think Stephen might think something different. Well, that's okay. We've already talked about this. We don't have to believe all the same details to love the same gospel, Right? And uh, But about 62 AD, if you had told a slave in the Roman Empire at the year 30 AD that one day there would be a community of people whose primary allegiance would no longer be Caesar, but a crucified Jewish peasant, and because that crucified Jewish peasant got raised from the dead, Those people would now give their allegiance to him in such a way that they would no longer consider you a piece of property at the margins of the human race, but they would start to see you as a brother. If you had said that to somebody in the year 30 AD, I don't think they would have believed you. And now 32 years later, that's a reality for Onesimus. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, if we will believe Jesus and accept the grace that he offers us, it can really change this broken world in ways that you and I could not begin to imagine. What could Jesus do 32 years from now to extend grace to people who have been pushed to the margins of the human race by injustice. One more thought. Under King Jesus, there's also grace for people who are blinded by injustice. There's grace for Onesimus in this letter. No longer a slave, but a brother. Family, not a tool. person. And there's grace for Philemon. Philemon claimed to have a right to own people. That was legal under Roman law. Not legal under the laws of King Jesus. We'll be making that case over 10 weeks. But legal under Roman law. It was just normal in Roman society. It would have been quite legal for Philemon to beat onesimus if he was displeased to starve him even to heat up a hot iron and brand him not right not just but legal and the more clearly philemon saw his rights under those roman laws the more he would have been blinded to the duties of the kingdom of jesus But there is grace in Jesus for people who have been blinded by injustice. These Roman laws were not just. Slavery is not just. It never has been. It never will be. Racism is not just. It never has been. It never will be. But sometimes it has been declared legal. And sometimes that injustice in the society around us can blind us And Jesus is willing to show grace to those who have been blinded. So Paul is writing to open the eyes of Philemon. Brother, there is grace for you. There is grace to transform your relationship with Onesimus. You think he has done you wrong. Put it on my bill. I'll cover it. Accept him, welcome him, not like a slave, but like a brother. There is grace to transform that relationship. There is grace, Philema, to transform your attitudes, these injustices that are completely and perfectly in step with the laws of the empire, but radically out of step with the laws of King Jesus. There is grace in Jesus to change you if you've been blinded, by injustice in this hard, cruel world. So if there's grace for somebody like Philemon, then there's grace for us today. This means I don't have to spend the rest of my life trying to prove to you that I'm not a racist and never have been. I am now free to say, yeah, I have been. It's not right. I want to grow, Lord Jesus, show me grace to change. I no longer have to prove that I'm better. I no longer have to prove that the problems in the world around me weren't my fault. I never owned a slave. What do I have to do with that? I never went to a segregated school. Well, except for that one year I went to a private school. I guess that was segregated. But I never went to a segregated school. That wasn't me. I didn't write those Jim Crow laws. I don't have to suddenly adopt this defensive posture because if there's grace for people who have been blinded by injustice, I don't have to prove that I've never been blinded. You see the freedom that knowing Jesus gives us. We now have the freedom to sit under him and say, Jesus, Jesus, If I have been blind, open my eyes. Jesus, I will not sit before you and try to convince you that I've always been able to see 2020. Perfect Jesus. I've never been blind. I don't think Jesus is going to buy that argument. He knows me too well. And so there's freedom in him to say, oh, there's grace There's grace for the people who have been the victims of injustice. And there's grace for people who have been blinded by injustice. There is grace in Jesus. That's why this letter ends the way that it does. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of y'all's spirit. I want to be part of a bigger church don't worry, I'm not leaving in town to be the pastor of a megachurch. I don't think they want me. But you're stuck with me. But I want to be part of a church that knows it's bigger, right? That knows that we belong to something worldwide that encompasses every race, every nation. It even encompasses centuries that I will never live in. The church is big, and we want to be part of this big church. I have been blind to the bigness of the church. So one of the things that we did recently, challenged to this by our elder Jason Kang, was to reach out to the nearest historically African-American church uh, that is in our neighborhood. That's um, out on La Vista Road, Mount Zion AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal. Mount Zion AME. So a few of us met with some of their leaders uh, back in the fall. We met outdoors, masks on, sitting in some brisk fall air, just starting to build friendships. And um, I did a little research to get ready for that. I don't know that much about the AME Church. I wanted to learn I learned that it was started when a member of a Methodist church in Washington, D.C., an African-American member, said, we would like to no longer have to sit in the balcony of this church. We would like to be able to sit anywhere. And, And the church said, you know, in Christ we are brothers and sisters, but you have to stay in the balcony. And that leader said, no, we're, we're going to start our own congregation. Makes sense. And um, then I learned that the next generation of leadership in the AME church involved a man named Henry McNeil Turner. I read that name and I thought, hang on a second. That sounds familiar to me. I grew up in a little town in South Carolina. It's got a sign, of, it's Turner Street, and, and there's... Um, There's this church, an AME church, that has a sign about Henry McNeil Turner. Who is this guy? It turns out that he's a significant Christian leader. Henry McNeil Turner became a follower of Jesus in my hometown, an African American man. It was not legal for him to be trained to read. Under Jim Crow laws, it was not legal for him to be taught theology, but two white lawyers in my hometown started training him in theology because he wanted to be a leader in the church. Henry McNeil Turner became a really key leader in the history of the Christian church, and I never knew it. Why have I been blind? Why did I live in that little town for so many years and I never knew this? Well, you could say, well, many of those years you weren't a Christian, Jimmy, so why would you have cared? Fair enough. But I became a Christian when I was 16. I'm not 16 anymore. I've had a while to learn about this. Why haven't I learned the stories of my black Christian brothers and sisters Why don't I know our neighbors at Mount Zion AME Church better than I do? I think I've been blinded. Now, Jimmy, you never owned a slave. Yep, true. Now, Jimmy, you didn't write in Jim Crow laws. True, true enough. But I don't think my vision of the church has been big. I don't think it's been as big as Jesus' vision of the church. Why is that? I think I've been blinded by the injustice of our world. And I want to sit before Jesus and say, not, Jesus, I was never blind, or Jesus, I'm better than that. Jesus, some people have been blind, but not me because I'm better than they are. I want to sit before Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your grace. I need your grace. I have been blind. Open my eyes. Help me to see with the same vision you see. Help me to see that the church is big and it includes a lot of people for whom the injustices of being pushed to the margin are not just a distant memory. Jesus, your church includes people for whom the injustices of slavery and racism are not distant memories. They are daily realities. And I have been slow to open my eyes, but Jesus, you give grace you give grace to give us courage to stand up against the empire and say, Caesar is not my Lord. Jesus, you give us grace to stand up and say to the society, this may seem normal to you, but we're a different kind of community. And what was once normal is no longer (laughs) tolerable for us because we have come under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King who has shown grace to us and will show grace to anyone who puts their trust in him. He is our hope. So here's our commitment as a team over the next 10 weeks we will never once say jesus plus justice we will say jesus therefore justice and we will say the power that fuels us and makes us want to follow jesus into whatever challenges ahead of us is his grace jesus will show us grace and that will lead us to pursue justice. He is not the mascot. He is not the mascot so that we can pursue things that we would love even if he were still dead. He is the king. He is the Lord. Let's follow him where he leads us. I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Bishop Henry McNeil Turner. I thank you for the preacher whose name I don't know, who stood in a field, whose address I do know, (laughs) and preached about Jesus, and Henry McNeil Turner came to faith in you that day. And then for decades, he brought many people to come to a place of knowing you and trusting you. And I wish I had known his story sooner. And I stand today not with a sense of guilt, (laughs) but a sense of joy that something that had been hidden from me has now been made known. Lord, would you give us those moments over the next 10 weeks, grace that has been hidden from us because our eyes have been blind to see your grace in every area of life shining its light so that we are filled with joy and that we are given greater courage to follow you wherever you lead. We love you, we trust you, and we believe that your rule is good for every person, every person who's part of your church, every neighbor who isn't part of your church. We believe that your rule is good for all. We want to follow you into it. We pray in your name. Amen.